pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this word that's before us to fix our minds and our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, on this great cause, this great commission that the Lord Jesus has given to us. And Lord, would you create a profound unity here, a unity that is free from judgmental spirits and attitudes, a unity that's free from contempt for those with whom we disagree, a unity that is strong in faith, a unity that arises from the fact that we know that we live for Christ, that he's what we're about, a unity that's preserved by our understanding and our deep awareness that you will judge. Lord, I pray that you would create a fear for you in us in response to the fact that we will all give an account of ourselves before your judgment seat. And Lord, cause that fear and that knowledge that we live for Christ to free us to live radically for the gospel. Make us bold to, to build relationships, to speak the gospel. Bold to stand against the overwhelming tides of our culture. Bold to sacrifice whatever needs to be given up. To live in purity and to be ready to go. Lord, I pray that you would do all this and more through your word, by the power of your spirit, in the name of Christ Jesus, for whom we live. Amen. <clears throat> I had the opportunity on Friday because uh, my son Jake was running in a cross-country meet down in Somerset. I had the opportunity to go uh, to Somerset Friday, and Jake and I stayed the night with uh, John Pope's parents. I'm looking around for John. There he is over there. Uh, they, were, they were wonderfully gracious and hospitable to take us in so that we didn't have to rise at like 5.30 in the morning and drive and then he, you know, him run a race Saturday morning. Uh, and, and Friday night, John's father was telling me about the First Baptist Church of Somerset and its travails and the way that the influence of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for ill in the years when the seminary was drifting left, had radiated out, and, and it resulted in that church, First Baptist Somerset, having a liberal pastor for a long time. And the fallout from that, from that pastor, who did not believe the Bible in crucial ways, is still being felt in that community. And it, it really brought home to me the significance of what we're doing here at Kenwood Baptist Church. Our church has tremendously important work to do in our personal lives because so often these departures from the faith, they, they start with moral issues in the lives of those in ministry. Our church has important, to do, important work to do as a congregation for the sake not just of this congregation, 
I mean, if we think about the pastors who have gone out from us, Luis has just gone to New Washington Christian Church, and I've mentioned Ross Shannon, who's pastoring up in, in Michigan, and I can think of Dan Bourne, and I can think of Ryan Chung, and I can think of Johnson Pe All these guys have gone out from us, and they're serving other churches. The life of this congregation is, is almost unimaginably significant, and I it's beyond any of us, but just look around at the people here who are trained to, training to go serve as pastors, and what this congregation is doing right now is going to affect the lives of countless congregations. And brothers and sisters, we should commit ourselves to pray for a great awakening in our society. We should commit ourselves to pray for the reformation of our society, the, the reforming of our society around the truth of God's word that will hopefully arise from so many conversions. That's what we should pray for. That, that's what we should commit ourselves to, to, to beseeching the Lord to make these pastors ready to pastor all these places that we hope will be filled with all these new converts, both here and around the world. We are not playing games. We're not just checking a box. This is about what the Lord Jesus commanded his people to do. And we want the real thing. We want a kind of Christianity that will result in the, the influence of this church being more significant in this neighborhood than that thing that's across the street over there with all its money. And all of its power to lure people into a destructive lifestyle. People go over there and they gamble their lives away. And our prayer ought to be that this church would be more significant in this neighborhood than Churchill Downs. That more people in this neighborhood will be affected by the gospel than by the lure of the money that they could win by placing the next bet. Or by selling the next little piece of whatever it is that they're using. We want this church to be more significant here than heroin or whatever other opioid they're using. We want the kind of Christianity that will result in the discipleship of children in this church that will prepare people who, who grow up in this church to be ready to go to an island for Jesus or to go to an Ivy League school and stand against the infidels and the unbelievers and keep the faith in a contested environment, or to go into a company, and if it's going to cost them their job to maintain the gospel and a biblical sexual ethic, so be it. That's the kind of Christian, that's the kind of discipleship that we want here. We want marriages that are going to persevere and deepen and become more rich and aged and refined. We want the kind of relationships among ourselves not just that are going to continue to tolerate one another, but that are going to last and grow and flourish and be more beautiful as the years go by. That's what Paul's after in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. In Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, I would invite you to turn there. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. In Romans 14, 1 through 12, Paul is addressing the kinds of attitudes that lead to some members of the congregation judging other members of the congregation. What's that going to result in? Disunity. Unhappiness. He, he's addressing the kinds of attitudes that lead to a judgmental spirit in some, while others, those being judged, 
begin to despise their brothers and sisters in the congregation. And these judgmental attitudes and these contemptuous attitudes, they destroy unity. And Satan wants to keep us from accomplishing the task that we've been given. Satan doesn't want us to influence the nations. Satan doesn't want us to influence the Southern Baptist Convention. Satan certainly doesn't want you, you to be holy and to feel a deep love for your brothers and sisters in the church, even when they disagree with you on things that are significant to you. So the kinds of attitudes that Paul is confronting here in Romans 14 are the kinds of things that keep those outside from knowing that we are Christians by our love for one another. So I'm going to plead with you to attend to this passage, to pay close attention to what Paul says here for the sake of your own personal holiness, for the sake of our congregational unity, for evangelistic power, and for discipling love that, that, that we're praying will be transforming. Can you imagine what it would be to see the transforming power of the gospel revolutionize this neighborhood? And then to see that radiate out from the south end of Louisville, through the city, through the state, and, and, and beyond. That's what, we're, that's what we're paying close attention to this passage, asking the Lord to do this morning. Uh, as we approach Romans 14, let me just remind you that in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, Paul has stated his missionary agenda, his evangelistic burden in Romans 1, 1 to 15. He's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And then he starts talking about why people need the gospel. Namely, he, he starts describing uh, people's sinful and, and the, the desperate wickedness in our hearts. And, and, he, and he continues through chapter 3 on that task. And then he lays out the propitiatory, substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. All this glorious stuff about how the Lord Jesus is the one in whom and by whom we're justified. He lays that out in Romans 3 at the end of the chapter. And then in Romans 4, he starts talking about justification by faith. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he starts talking about the Christian life that flows out of the gospel. He deals with uh, the, the issue of election and how it relates to the nation of Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And then he gets to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he starts urging his audience by the mercies of God to be living sacrifices, to resist conformity to the world, to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. In chapter 13, the first part of the chapter, he talks about how we relate to the government. And then in chapter 13, at the, the second part of the chapter, verses 8 through 14, he tells us to love one another, to fulfill the law, to put on Christ. And this is really relevant for what we're what we're looking at this morning, because now it's like he's going to get particular about how we love one another and how we understand the law to be fulfilled. Because in the church in Rome, probably the issue was you had a lot of Jewish Christians and a lot of Gentile Christians. And some of these Jewish Christians had probably only recently come to faith. And maybe they hadn't heard passages like the one that we read this morning from Mark chapter 7. So maybe some of these new Jewish believers weren't even aware that the Lord Jesus had declared all foods clean. We, we don't know. Paul's writing 
mid-50s, 57 AD. Maybe they have the Gospel of Mark. Maybe they don't. I don't, I don't know what they know, but, but they're, not, they're not fully ready to accept the fact that Christ has declared all foods clean, and they're not sure what to do about the Sabbath day, and there's, there's some dispute over these issues. And what Paul is going to say is, as he's just said, look at Romans 13, verse, verse 8, at the end of the verse, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's a controversial statement. What about the food regulations? What about the clean and unclean? What about the Sabbath? Paul says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he says in the next verse, verse 9, any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what we're seeing here in this section of Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's like Paul is saying, the Lord Jesus is worthy of a whole life of worship. Romans 13, verse 14, Jesus has lived himself. He has himself lived out the fulfillment of the law. So put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. And then here in this passage, Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is the one for whom we live and the one who will judge us. So look at Romans 14, verse 1. Verse 1, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I've already alluded to the situation. Uh, I think the situation in the church is you have Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles are perfectly fine eating any kind of food. And the Gentiles are perfectly fine doing whatever they need to do on Saturday, the Sabbath. And then you have these Jews that maybe they've only recently come to faith, or maybe, they've, maybe they have heard Mark 7, but it hasn't really worked its way into their consciousness. And they need to hear it again, and they need to, to be brought along, brought around to the understanding that Jesus actually did have the authority to declare all foods clean. And that that really does mean that all this stuff that they grew up avoiding, you really can eat it now. And, and then also, I mean, if, as I was reflecting on this passage, I was thinking to myself, you know, it would really be helpful if the New Testament had just crystal clear statements about the Sabbath. Because even today, you have Christians who are Sabbatarian, and then you have other Christians who hold to the Lord's Day. And I was thinking to myself, why don't we have a really... And then I thought, well, wait a minute. You do have Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Now, I'm not going to go take you through Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, but I think we could make a biblical theological argument that in those chapters, the author of Hebrews is addressing these very questions. Well, maybe these Jewish Christians in Rome haven't received that letter yet. We don't know when Hebrews exactly was written. Maybe they haven't had that expl explanation yet. They've got real faith, but look what Paul is doing. He's saying, as for the one who is weak in faith. These are genuine believers, but they're not strong in their faith. And their weakness makes it where they're uncomfortable about that food. And they're uncomfortable, uncomfortable seeing their Gentile brothers work on the Sabbath. And Paul is saying, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. What does this mean? I think it means welcome them into your home. And Welcome them into the church. Don't conclude 
that because someone has a different set of convictions than you have, they're not a believer, and they're to be expelled. I, I, I think that's part of it. Don't kick them out of the church, and then don't kick them out of your life. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. But notice also how he, he has said that this is weakness in faith. And, and by saying that, I think Paul is implying these people do need to get stronger. They do need to, they do need to be brought along. They do need to grow out of these hang-ups. But, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, and then he goes on, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, I think what he's saying here is, don't just invite them over to berate them about the points at which you disagree. Don't just invite them over to harangue them. No, welcome them. Have a glad-hearted, open-hearted, welcoming spirit toward people with whom you disagree. It's a challenging word for us. It's a, it's a word that suggests for us that we should care more about these people for whom Christ died than we should about their opinions. And sometimes it's hard for us to get those two, those two things straightened out. We need to love the people more than we love the issues. This is hard for me personally. I have, there are members of this congregation, you know who you are, I have failed you directly on this issue. There, there have been times when I've been more earnest about the problem or the issue or the question than I have about the people with whom I'm interacting. I'm, I need help. Pray for me on that. I need to get this straight. Paul is speaking to us on this issue. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then he, he elaborates on it. He's going to explain exactly what he's talking about with reference to eating in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. That's not a prescription about a weightlifting diet, right? That, that was supposed to be funny. I'm... Yeah. The weak, what he's saying is the one who is weak in faith is probably someone who, who is saying, well, that food, it could be unclean food. I'm not sure where it came from. That food could have been offered to an idol, so I'm just going to avoid being contaminated or defiled by anything unclean by not eating meat whatsoever. And Paul's attitude is, that's weakness. That's weakness. So he says one person, may, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Paul is addressing something that happens in the hearts of the strong. And there's a, there's a dynamic here where I think there's responsibility on both sides. So to see that, let's, let's keep reading. After he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, he says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So here's, I think, just kind of the way this works. Those who are abstaining, they begin to think, well, I'm clean, and I'm not being defiled. And that makes me a better Christian. That makes me more acceptable to God. And then they begin to judge those who eat. Meanwhile, those who eat, they, they understand, well, Christ declared all foods clean. I can eat this food. And then they resent the judgmental spirit from the abstainers, 
and they begin to feel contempt, and they begin to despise those people. And this dynamic results in disunity. Look at what Paul says here. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And I think that applies to both sides. If, if we're talking about somebody who has placed their faith and hope in the Lord Jesus, even if they've got hang-ups, convictions, that they shouldn't do things that you think the Bible allows. I mean, there are Christians today who uh, think that the Bible forbids, prohibits tattoos. And then there are other Christians who are getting tattoos. we got different convictions on these issues. If somebody has placed their faith and hope in Jesus, repented of their sins, and they're following Christ, God has accepted them. And however you might disagree with them on those those matters of conviction, we we can't judge and we can't despise. So I think for the for the abstainers, there's, there's, there's a key question that, that they need to ask. And it's this. Is Jesus big enough to nullify the Old Testament food laws? And, and has what Christ has done, is it big enough to reorder the whole calendar and make it so that the Sabbath is no longer relevant or it's no longer, it's now found in faith in Christ? It's fulfilled as we rest in Christ, as we sang today. That's the question for the abstainers and for those who esteem the day, which we'll get to in in another verse or two. For the despisers, they're also facing a question. The despisers are facing, I mean, these people, they're they're feeling a, a kind of resentful spite for their brothers and sisters in Christ who are judging them. The question for them is, can God be trusted to strengthen the weak? If God can be trusted to strengthen these people who are weak in faith, then then you can love them. For the judges, the abstainers, another question that they need to reckon with, wrestle with, do you realize that God is enough of a judge? God is enough of a judge. So really, you know, for both sides of this question, the, the danger for both of them is that their view of God is too small. Their view of God is too small. If you are feeling a judgmental spirit toward brothers and sisters in Christ over matters that don't pertain to like justification by faith and, and those kinds of things, is your view of God too small? If you are resenting brothers and sisters in Christ because you sense that they're judging you, is your view of God too small? Here's what I want to suggest to you. The big God will bring unity to the church in Rome and in the church right here. A big view of God, an understanding. Jesus is big enough to to tell us what foods are clean. The New Testament is inspired by the Spirit to instruct us what we do on Saturdays and Sundays and every other day. And God is big enough to bring people along in the faith. Look at what Paul says in verse 4 here. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. He will stand. He will be made to stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So 
Paul is really getting at, at these questions that I'm, that I'm proposing to you are the real issue. It is not our place to pass judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not our place to play the judge. God is the judge. It is not our place to play the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the tricky thing here is that sometimes the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, does work through our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's not going to come through a judgmental spirit or a contemptuous, contemptuous spirit, a despising spirit. It's going to come from a heart of love. That's when the Holy Spirit's going to work and use us. So if we disagree on these kinds of things, and I'm going I'm to go through a whole list of things here in a moment. If we disagree on these kinds of things, here's, here's one response that I would propose to you from this passage. We need to look to the Lord, God the judge, Christ the Lord. We need to look to him and, and pray. We need to have our thinking affected by this massive God that the Bible presents to us. And then we need to commit our concerns to him and entrust them to him. Verse 5, Paul writes, here he's talking about the day. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. I think that Paul is most li likely talking about the Sabbath here and the disagreements between Jews and Gentiles in Rome over the Sabbath. And my view on this passage is that if Paul wanted to say all Christians need to observe the Sabbath... This is a great time to quote the Old Testament and simply say right here, uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, which he doesn't do. If he had done that, it would have rebuked those who esteem all days alike. Look what he says next. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So not only does he not say, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, he also does not say, no one needs to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. He does say, be fully convinced. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So I think Paul leaves this matter to Christian conscience, as if, he, as if he's saying, if you want to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, great. If you don't want to do that, that's fine too. But you can't judge those who disagree with you on the matter, and you can't feel spite for those who disagree with you on the matter. And then in verses 6 through 9, Paul's going to explain that all of this is for Christ's sake. So, look at verse 6. He says, the one who observes the day, this, I think he's talking about someone keeping the Sabbath, Saturday. The one who does that observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, and here he, I think he's talking about those who eat whatever is sold in the market, unclean food, clean food, food offered to idols, whatever. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, so the one who would say, I'm only going to eat vegetables because I don't want to be defiled in any way. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So he kind of puts them on equal footing there. And, and I think here that Paul is assuming the best of everybody involved in the situation. He's assuming the best even of those who are potentially cultivating a kind of judgmental spirit in their abstention, right? Because look at what he says there. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. I think it's an implicit rebuke of their, at least potentially, legalistic and self-righteous and judgmental abstention. Similarly, 
the one who eats, earlier in verse 6 there, eats in honor of the Lord. It's, a, it's an, at least an implicit rebuke of the one who eats and says, well, I'm just going to indulge, and those people who think that they can't, you know, and then all this spite comes out, this contemptuous despising of those people who disagree with them. And, and it's like he's saying, no, you both need to be eating or abstaining in honor of the Lord. But he doesn't, he doesn't do it as a rebuke or a command. He says, this is what they do. If you abstain, you abstain in honor of the Lord. If you eat, you eat in honor of the Lord. And you, you both give thanks to God. It's like he says, this is what you do. And it's really what they should do, I think. But the positive words that say what should be and describe how they should live, those positive words thereby convict and reprove and humble. Because, I mean, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking to myself, I ought to eat in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God with every bite. I ought to do that. And if there are things that I abstain to, I ought to do. But I so often, it's like I just lose sight of that, drift away from that. And this is calling us back to the way that we should live for Christ's sake. And so Paul's going to elaborate on this in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord or for the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, isn't it? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So let me just, maybe I don't need to go through a list like this, but I'm just going to go through a list like this, okay? We don't live to despise other Christians. We don't live to despise other Christians, even Christians who judge us. We don't live to despise them. We don't live to boast about our freedoms. We don't live to boast about uh, how what Christ has done makes us free to do things that other Christians would disapprove of, as though somehow we're better than them. We don't live to judge other Christians who may be doing things that we disapprove of. We don't live to do that. We don't live to abstain from things. We don't live to indulge in things. We don't live to esteem one day or not. No. We live for the Lord. You see the point I'm making here? We live for the Lord. And if we get distracted by any of these things, we're losing sight of the real task at hand. We don't live... Now here, I'm going to go through some things that I think separate Christians, the kinds of things that could cause disunity among us. And maybe this will apply to you, maybe it won't apply to you. We don't live to get up, on the, get up early in the morning to have a quiet time, and we don't live to sleep in. Either way, we live for the Lord. We don't live to use technology or not use te technology. We don't live to boast in our wealth or to boast in our frugality and thriftiness or poverty. We don't live to boast in our sympathy and understanding and large-heartedness while despising those who are unenlightened in the ways that we consider ourselves to be enlightened. We don't live to memorize Scripture. I mean, I think that's great. I think it's tremendously important. I think it's also easy to slip into judging people that don't do it or despising all this business. We live for the Lord. 
we don't live to hold certain philosophies. We live for the Lord. We don't live to trumpet the conclusions of a certain teacher. We live for the Lord. We don't live to adopt certain methodologies. We live for the Lord. We don't live to make sure that we checked off the box on our Bible reading. We don't live to log a certain number of hours in prayer. We don't live to get certain grades. We don't live to get our kids to behave. We don't live to get married or to stay single. We don't live to homeschool or whatever, send our kids as missionaries into the... We don't live for any of these things that divide us. We live for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For to this end, to be Lord, to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. What Paul is saying is Christ is preeminent. Your life is about Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's the creator, the savior, the example, and the goal of our whole lives. And this is glorious. This is such a liberating reality because it tells us that what we need to live and please God is not the ability to have Steph Curry's jumper or to have Tom Brady's longevity, or to have Donald Trump's celebrity, or Nancy Pelosi's shrewdness, or John Piper's holiness. No, we live for Christ, and we live by Christ. And He is the Lord of the living and the dead. Jesus is Lord. Because of that, I think Paul wants a profound welcoming spirit among believers. Back to verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. When we, when we welcome one another into fellowship at the Lord's table, we don't do that to pick a fight with one another, to have a quarrel over opinions. When we welcome one another into our homes and show hospitality to one another, we don't invite people over just to pursue the argument about election and predestination or what women can do in ministry or whatever the case may be. No, we need to love one another. We need to love one another. Look at verse 10. Verses 10 through 12, Paul is going to bring this home saying, God is going to be the judge. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? And, and we all need to think about this because we are, you know, if we were not prone to judgmental spirits, Jesus would not have said, judge not that you be not judged. If we were not prone to, to think, I'm more holy because I get up early in the morning and read the Bible. If we were not prone to think, I'm more holy because I never touch alcohol. Or I'm more holy because I'm always at church. Or I, whatever, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is. I'm more holy because dot, dot, dot in your life. If we were not prone to think that and then to begin to judge and feel this contempt for other believers... The Bible wouldn't say stuff like this. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you pass? The, the question assumes that's not your business. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Paul is asking these questions because he knows this is in our hearts. And then here's the explanation. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. God is enough of a judge. We're going to give an account to him. Verse 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, 
and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice the connection between verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, and then verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That he is Lord means he is judge. That he died and lived means that he, he will judge. And only by looking away from the Lord can we sit in judgment on our brothers and sisters. If, if, if we're feeling either a judgmental kind of condemning spirit toward brothers and sisters, in the, we're not looking at Jesus. And if we're feeling this sort of spite and contempt and this kind of despising attitude toward our brother, we're not looking at Jesus. No, if we're looking at him, what we're feeling for our brothers and sisters is, Lord, I know I'm going to stand before you, and I know they're going to stand before you. Help us to get our... help, Lord, by your Spirit, clean us up. Cause the faith to be so worked through every aspect of our consciousness that we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Cause us, by faith, to put on Christ completely so that when we stand before you, we'll be right. The cure for a judgmental spirit is the experience of the living God. I'm going to say that again. The cure for a judgmental spirit is the experience of the living God. And now we can say it the other way. The cure for despising the weak in faith is the experience of the living God. That's what we want. And I think implicitly here also the cure for weak faith is the experience of the living God. Those who are weak in faith, they just need more of Jesus. They need to be taught what the New Testament says. And the Lord will do His work. I talked to Johnson Pang yesterday, and he gave me a great illustration of this, of, of the kind of unity in a church that really lives out this non-judgmental, non-despising love for others. And Johnson didn't bring out some of these aspects of his, of his situation, but I'm going to bring them out because they're really there. Uh, Johnson, as you, as you know, is in Baltimore. And Johnson, as you may or may not know, is, is Chinese-born American. And Baltimore is a place where there's a lot of racial tension. And, and, and Johnson, for, um, for however long Tim, since Timmy's birth, I, don't, I can't remember the exact number of months it's been, but for the whole time that, uh, that his son Timmy has been alive, um, they've basically lived on uh, government health care. That's how they've, I mean, the, the Lord has provided for them. As you may know, Timmy has all these surgeries and, um, and, and their insurance and, and the, the government funding of health care and all the rest has made it so that John, neither Johnson nor Emily has had to work. And they haven't gone, had to go into savings. Their whole lives have been provided for both through the government, and through the generosity of the saints. And here's why I say that. Because nobody there at that church is saying, well, I can't believe that government, government health care. You know. No, people are rejoicing. People are rejoicing that they're able to care for this baby. They're loving one another. And then this is the, this is the issue. In this, in this racially charged environment in Baltimore, in this situation that's politically charged over the health care issues and all that business, Johnson told me that because Timmy has, Timmy has gotten stronger, he's actually been trying to exercise more, and, and he's been trying to go and play basketball. And so he, 
he went and he, and he played basketball with some guys from the church, and he told me he played in his basketball-only shoes. These are shoes that he had, you know, they're basketball shoes. He was only wearing them on the court. Well, they're, they're worn out because he hasn't had a job for however long, two years, and he hasn't gotten new, new shoes, and he said the soles of the shoes were coming off on the court. And the guys that he was playing ball with noticed this, didn't say anything to Johnson, noticed this, they all got together, and they all went and bought him. You know, they all chipped in and went and bought him a new pair of basketball shoes. And this is what he said, the fact that they noticed. I, he said, I didn't point it out, and nobody said anything to me, but they noticed. And then they took the initiative. This is love for one another's. That, that's, that's, they will know you are Christians by your love. If we're, if, we're, if we're able to look at one another, and we're not judging one another, and we're not despising one another, we're seeing one another's needs. And then we're seeing these needs, and then taking the initiative to meet these needs. That's living out, Jesus saying, they will know you are Christians by your love. Let's pray. Father, would you make it so here? Lord, there, there's so many ways that that your spirit is at work among us. And so many ways I know that your people here are doing these kinds of things, Lord, but I also know that in our hearts, all of us feel a temptation to, to judge those with whom we disagree. And then a, a corresponding temptation exists to feel contempt or to despise people who either we know are judging us or we suspect are judging us or whatever. Lord, I pray that you would obliterate all of that by your glory. I pray that you would make your goodness and your great worth and your, your holiness and your splendor and your beauty and the terrifying fact that we'll all stand before you as our judge. Lord, I pray that you would make the fear of you and the knowledge of you so overwhelming that we don't have any time to sit in judgment of one another or to feel spite toward one another. Lord, free us from all of that. And through this gospel freedom that we're asking you for, Father, we also pray that you would cause us to experience evangelistic power. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be sowing, help us to be watering, but we're asking you to give the growth, to do the miracle among us. And we're praying, Lord, that you would transform this neighborhood, that the love of Christ and that the, the gospel that is proclaimed here would become more compelling to everybody on 3rd Street, to everybody on Southern Parkway, to everybody tempted to go and, and risk everything at Churchill Downs or to find a way to get high. Lord, I pray that they would see that what you offer is so much better than anything that could be found there. And Lord, I pray that this gospel and the unity that we experience here would be replicated in thousands of churches. Churches here on this continent and churches on every other continent on this globe. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work, a work that goes beyond our ability to imagine. And Lord, I pray that you would get the glory that's due your name as many offer thanksgiving to you. We commit ourselves to you, Father, and we call on your name. Yours is the only power that could accomplish what we're asking you to do. So we look to you to do it. In the name of Christ, amen.